0: Trouble Magazine would like to thank its sponsors: Ararat Gallery Tama, Bendigo Living Art Space, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery, Swan Hill Regional Art Gallery, Wangaratta Art Gallery, and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support. What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr. Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble.
1: So we're here in the studios of Main FM, and Dr. Mark Halloran is with me once again, and it's time for Deep Trouble. Mark, how are you? I'm well. How are you, Steve? Very good, very good. We've got an interesting interview today with uh, Peter Highlands, and an interesting and well-travelled individual is Peter. He travels between places like Japan and Africa and in the far-flung areas of Australia, and he'll be regaling us with uh, some of his stories and observations tonight. Peter Highlands <clears throat> is the principal director of Creative Cowboys Films and makes documentaries. Well, I know that most of Peter's films
0: focus on culture, and the intersection between different cultures, particularly Indigenous cultures, and the West. And so there are films in relation to how mining has affected
1: Aboriginal people in places like Arnhem Land. Right. So he's travelled around the world, made films in Japan, Africa, and, well, pretty much everywhere. I think his view is
0: that there are incredibly valuable things to learn from Indigenous cultures, what we call First Nations cultures. First In, In terms of things like the environmental caretaking and sustainability.
1: I think that a lot of listeners will find it hard to disagree with any of Peter's observations about the need for conservation. In fact, some people would say he's preaching to The Converted here on Main FM and Deep Trouble. I was just wondering, what is the market for the films, you think? I mean, I can't imagine, say, National Party voters subscribing to the Creative Cowboys website do you know what I mean? We don't think it's aimed at one nation or something like that. I don't think it is somehow. Mm. I think it's aimed for those people who are already sympathetic to those views, much like the same people who would buy National Geographic or something like that.
0: Mm. Well, I suppose you've, you have to know your demographic, don't you? I mean, I think I know what you're getting at in terms of do you just pitch to the audience that already agrees with you or do you make some effort to try and convert people whose ideas and worldview are different to yours? I think that some of the focus in terms of what we talk about at the end of the interview in relation to Brexit is about how we communicate our ideas and have a conversation with people who have a worldview
1: that is different to ours. I think it's an important part that comes up in your interview, mm. and I was very interested In Peter's comments at that stage, he says this, You come to think about what democracy means under these circumstances, the trick with government is to not get into those places like Brexit. I read that as Peter saying that modern democracies are failing us. You know, like here in Australia, we have two basically conservative governments to choose from. But in terms of climate change or most conservation matters, there's not a lot to separate, especially now. There's not a great deal of difference when we're talking about the issues that Peter is discussing today. So what I am saying is if Peter distrusts democracy, what's the alternative? As he says in regard to Brexit, he was dismayed, as many people were, by the choice the British public made to leave the EU. I'm just saying what what the the logical conclusion is, Mm. that we can't trust the public to make decisions in their best own interests.
0: I would probably take the point to be that in terms of, let's say, the major parties, Mm -hmm. that if there are special vested interest groups that not only lobby the parties, but are essentially ensconced within the parties, so in America you have the lobbyist system. So, I mean, there is some argument to be made that if you've got special interest groups which have very, very specific aims and access to government and, uh, well, that's usually associated with some sort of financial advantage, Mm. do you really have democracy then?
1: Yeah, well, exactly right.
0: Because if the the policies that are profit are only really the policies that are decided upon by special interest groups... Special interest groups could be corporations like Apple. It could be mining corporations. Do you really still have democracy?
1: And as Peter says, I mean, look at our media Mm -hmm. controlled by Rupert Murdoch. Mm. Can you have a democracy when the press is so controlled and reflects a very narrow range of political opinions? Well, these are very serious issues, and Peter talks about a range of challenges that we face And I have to say, I have to say, unfortunately, that one would be really hard-pressed to see a way forward in resolving some of the issues that Peter talks about.
0: Yeah, I don't think that there is a simple solution. I, I mean, his idea that it would have been better for the UK Parliament not to offer the option to have an exit from the European Union would have been better. But the complex social and historical factors that led into that Mm. are possibly not predictable or controllable.
1: Yeah, well, certainly that's not the central focus of tonight's interview. He certainly led an extremely interesting life. And I'm sure the listeners will be intrigued by his insider's view on many of the issues that we need to solve very soon. So let's hear it, Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Peter Highlands. Mm.
2: I might just tell you a little bit about myself quickly. Sure. So really, for the last 50 years, I've been creating content around the world, producing it. I worked for a major international media and publishing business for 30 years, starting in London, and then moved to the Asia-Pacific in 1974. But in the last 20 years, it's been quite interesting because we've actually been writing and producing our own material. That is in both writing for business and economics, um, looking at some of the social aspects of what occurs in Australia and in other places. I've got a good team of colleagues that I work with in Melbourne on many of these things. And over the last 16 or 17 years, we've been producing films. And we work very consistently with Indigenous people, not only in Australia. We work in Africa, we spend time living with the Maasai, for example. We work in Japan with the Ainu people. And of course, we fell in love with Indigenous Australia, literally a few weeks after arriving here, uh, through really their art. And we began collecting bark paintings in Arnhem Land in the mid-1970s, which turned out to be a Fantastic thing to do, and, and a window into the most wonderful world you can imagine. And I do this with my wife Andrea, I should say. Currently, we're working on a series of sacred stories in Arnhem Land in a place called Ankarabadiri. We've just about finished those now. We we shot them several months ago, but it's a big process editing all that material, of course. And that really is to provide an archive for those people in that region they're all in language they tell the stories of the past and as things change so rapidly we're trying to capture some of that.
0: I was interested in the focus that seemed to be on the intersection between cultures and I wondered what your cultural identity was and who, who you are.
2: Well, I have had quite a few of them, as it happens, but um, my parents uh, met in Carinthia in Austria, my father was in the British Army, and my mother was an Austrian young woman. So I grew up in the Alps in Southern Europe, and that makes you an environmentalist, because they're extremely beautiful, mm. mountains and forests and all the rest of it. I also grew up, if you like, in the on-trails of the Nazis, so... Mm. My grandfather was in prison in Klagenfurt, but he survived it, courtesy of the Gestapo and the Nazis. So I lived... The family survived all those horrors, and I lived with them in the 1950s in Corinthia on a beautiful lake called the Vertice. But in doing that, I also had a life in the UK. I went to school in England as well. And in England, I spent a lot of my time in museums. So Natural History Museum, British Museum, all those places. Uh, So I learned a lot about the environment back in those early times. So you had the intellectual processes that were going in London, so you could absorb lots of information, lots of knowledge about the world. And, you know, this fantastic outdoor life, scampering up and down the mountains in southern Austria on the Italian border.
0: I was interested in that idea that when you focus and your interaction with culture is around an idea of putting a circle around everyone and saying everyone's included in this. But it seems to be that a lot of the discussion, particularly when it comes to identity politics and far-left identity politics, is, is more about divisiveness, what separates us.
2: Yeah, I think the US, the United Kingdom, which is heading off a cliff at a very fast rate at the moment, And Australia all share something very similar, and that's a sort of divisive politics, the politics of the patriot. You know, if you don't agree with us, Mm -hmm. then you don't belong here. And that is a big issue because that is a very narrow view of the world, Mm -hmm. and it really relates to a certain set of industries that are controlling places. Uh, We all know about, you know, the issues in Australia regarding renewable energy and coal and all the rest of it. If you do nothing, you really are supporting the past and you get outcomes just as we've had in Queensland. And just one of those mines that is being opened, by the way, has the same emissions per annum, will account for the same emissions per annum as the whole of Austria. And we know the Great Barrier Reef because we work in the Torres Strait a lot. We've had a, a lifelong association with the Great Barrier Reef. We've seen it change. What we see on Cape York now when we fly up to the Torres Strait in small aircraft flying low over the reef, what you can see below you as land clearing takes off around the river systems uh, on Cape York is the great plumes of earth, red earth, coming into that Great Barrier Reef Park. And you come to think about what democracy means
0: under these Mm -hmm. circumstances. Firstly, you were talking about sort of that nationalistic idea, which would be more like a far-right type uh, or right-leaning type of politics. Uh, But it seems to me, thinking about this, uh, that part of the issue is politics, because uh, compromise seems to be intrinsically embedded within it, uh, and particularly when it comes down to economic drivers. I was thinking about it when I was watching your films about Peter Garrett and when he became Environment Minister and he basically approved the diversion of the MacArthur River, MacArthur River uh, yeah. for a mining expansion. And Which is a disaster. In, and faced mm. incredible amount, and, uh, amounts of yeah. criticism from the local Aboriginal people and nationally, um, and then went back to... Uh, performing with uh, Midnight Oil saying, well, you have to accept me. So, I mean, it seems like the very mechanics of politics are compromise and loss of integrity in relation to certain things. Well,
2: the political process is a very difficult one and I try and speak to as many politicians as I can and what they always say is that this is not my idea of how it works. You know, I don't want to be part of this, but they all are. So, (laughs) you know, it goes around in a big circle. Right. So Um, what does that mean, I suppose? Yeah, what does it mean? How do you change it? And I think the Liberal National Party in Canberra is, is a particularly bad government without any plans, but we have to be progressive in life. So mm. progress is something that's ahead of us.
0: Right. Well, I mean, to some extent what we're talking about is actually a, a reversal. It's a, a conservatism. When we, when we talk about, which is what you'd think would be a conservative perspective of retaining something that's mm. traditional. So environmental protection, to some extent, is a conservative idea.
2: It is. And if you look at the history of the United States conservation, you'll see that it was the conservative politicians that that put in place a lot of those national parks and things and and defended that principle. A trick of history. A a trick of history. So we have to be able to value the earth because we only have one planet Mm.
1: and it is a very fragile mechanism. You're listening to the Deep Trouble Podcast. Dr Mark Halloran, conversation with Peter Highlands, publisher, film producer, writer and conservationist. We think about other
2: species quite a lot and just coming back to Australia again, what we notice is that both the major parties are in the same space on this. Lockstep. Lockstep. So animals in the environment, Australian native species have a very small voice. And if we take Victoria, for example, there's something like 80 species on on the Labour government's ATCW list, Authority to Control Wildlife list. Um, they've basically almost doubled the number of wildlife uh, permits they're issuing and they've doubled the number of animals being killed. So, for example, in the last 10 years... Um, between the Liberal Nationals and, and Labor, they've issued permits for uh, the control, which means killing, of 27,000 wombats in the state. And the wombat is in deep trouble because it's, it you know, um, has a number of disease issues. It is also unprotected in half of the state. So you get these incredible things going on that nobody knows about. As I said earlier, you know, in the last 10 years, the Victorian governments have accounted for the death of four and a half million birds, covering a whole range of species. Part of that is the duck shooting season that occurs every year consistently, regardless of the information being provided by scientists. Uh, it's a minority interest of, you know, less than 0.2% of the Victorian population. Why does it exist? Why does it create exclusion zones in great swathes of Victoria? Why are Ramsar sites, uh, the international agreements, and I've been speaking to the Ramsar Secretariat in Switzerland, why are these not recognised properly? Because if you go to a Ramsar site in Victoria, it doesn't say it's a Ramsar site. They disguise that. Right. And it just says, this is a game reserve. And for three months of the year, there are people there shooting the living daylights out of the bird life. As incredibly cruel, and you know this—the um, the, the range of species that are on the ATCW list yes. in Victoria is quite extraordinary. Um, and who knows what goes on out there? Um, but none of it should be encouraged by by the Victorian government. Um, in in Victoria, for example, in the broader macropod family. Uh, there were sixteen species back in the in the nineteenth century. Seven of those are extinct. three are on the edge of extinction now, and some of the others are in trouble and they 've just introduced a, a commercial industry kangaroo industry into the state um, largely because kangaroos are running out in other places so there 's a whole load of mythology around yes. all that so don 't believe the numbers and don 't believe the spin. <laughs>
0: I was thinking about um, the idea of culture as well because of the focus on culture and the idea whether culture would be static. Yeah, I
2: mean, if you take Australian Indigenous culture, I mean, we we have worked on probably 40 film projects with, with Aboriginal people over a long period of time, living with them. Obviously, their cultures have evolved and adapted. I mean, Aboriginal people are some of the most resilient people on earth. And to be able to have such a connection with a great place like Australia, with a great land like Australia, for all that period of time, is quite extraordinary. And to be able to adapt to the circumstances... I might just take you to Western Australia for a moment to the Murujuga, the great Murujuga, which is the greatest rock art site on earth.
0: So this is affected by industrialisation as it's, well. This has had a long history of being affected by industrialisation. It has.
2: It's something that, that started in Charles Court's time. And I actually went there with Andrew with a team of rock art specialists and Carmen Lawrence a few years ago and I had quite a few discussions with Carmen. When she was the Premier of Western Australia, she was taken to the Burrup Peninsula, the Moorjuga, where um, a number of industrial developments are occurring. This is not mining, this is putting factories and gas trains. Gas comes in from 100 kilometres offshore or so, plonk onto the Barak Peninsula. Carmen wasn't told that there was rock art there, so she was shown all these sort of grandiose schemes and things, uh, but not told about some of the cultural issues there. Even today, if you go to the Karatha tourist building and, and you say, you know, have you got anything on the rock art, they'll yeah. look at the floor and say, oh, you don't need to go and look at that.
0: There is a Dampier Rock Art project, which is a protectionist project that was put in place by the Western Australian government. That's right. Uh, But once again you've got this tension between preservation or conservation and economics. Because I read that in 2008 there had been reported the potential destruction of one of the world's oldest representations of a human face. Correct. At the same time that there was outrage when the Taliban destroyed the Bamiyan Buddhas. Exactly.
2: Now, I just want to give you the scale of, uh, and we often make that comparison, give you the scale of what's gone on in the borough. We have a close association with Japan. And about 25 years ago, I noticed that a piece of rock art from the borough had been gifted to a Japanese businessman. And I thought, this is very strange. You know, apart from the strangeness of it, there are also cultural issues here as well. And when I looked at it more closely, I discovered that it's actually tens of thousands of pieces of artwork that were being destroyed, and you're right. Mm. The site is unique, and just to describe it to you, it was a chain of hillsides, and they're large boulders. And on those boulders, there are engravings into the rock, famous panels like the climbing men panels, very beautiful things, very ancient. When people were living and carrying out their ceremonies and engravings on the Burrup, it was during the ice maximum, 20,000, 30,000 years ago. So obviously that whole range of hills were far inland. And during the Ice Age, Australia became very dry. That part of Australia became very dry. So we're looking at a very arid region far away from the coast. As the Ice Age came to an end, sea level rose, of course, and those hillsides became islands, and they became hills on the coastline. So, in the rocks, the story that we're telling is a story of climate change of how the sea rose, how people changed their lifestyle. You're talking so, about
0: non-anthropogenic ch- climate change. Yeah, we're talking so about natural. Yeah, climate
2: we're change. talking about non-anthropogenic climate change. And the climate does change, of course, but we're obviously in a different space now. Uh, where climate is changing much, much more rapidly than it it has done previously. But these rocks show the whole story of those changes, so from inland animals and ceremonies to turtles and fish. It's quite a remarkable story, so it deserves something more than having a bulldozer shoved through it and the artwork being crushed up for roads and things. Now, we've worked on this for a long time, and it does have international attention, but things still continue uh, in a most unsatisfactory way. And both Labour and the Liberal governments have blocked its World Heritage listing, which is one of the most disgraceful
0: things that I think I've come across. That is because of economic advantage. Well, in that is because of
2: the of a stupid idea of putting it there in the first place. I mean, yes. those factories and developments should not be there. I mean, they are, unfortunately, as a, as a legacy of history. But it was unnecessary. And it was a, a very strange thing to have done, which I think people all around the world find very hard to understand why this has happened.
0: Well, I mean, is there two elements? Well, there's probably multiple elements to this. But are there two elements in terms of, obviously, Western Australia in terms of its economy and even nationally, owes a lot to the mining industry in terms of economics? And then the other part would be, well, do Australians really value their cultural heritage at a national level? Well, I think if you go to economics,
2: if you wanted to build some factories and if you were confronted with some big hills with great rocks all over them, which you had to move before you could build anything, or vast areas of flat land next to it, why would you stick your factories in the hills? It's a silly idea, isn't it?
0: Well, it it sounds like a bad idea. So what is the reason for it then? I mean, uh, it it seems like there's a tension between their realisation that this has uh, immense cultural value and then the economics of industry, the uh, state and the federal governments sitting with the tension of that it doesn't seem like something yeah. that they would do if there wasn't some reason for it in it's relation to their the economic advantage in relation to mining i'm not defending i'm just no, no, saying that's the, that the seems like. to be the, the tensions it,
2: this is a number of issues attached yeah. to it clearly it is more expensive to have gone and done what they've done mm. so i think a lot of people ask this question why has this happened and it's too late to do anything about it now except to try and protect what's left, left. which is still very extensive. Yes. And you're right, it does include the first human faces known on Earth, those sort of things. One of the issues is the lack of respect for place and this whole idea, the Indigenous idea of connection to place, this place being part of you. That's totally missing from these decisions. They don't give a damn. They just don't care. So it's meaningless to them. The yeah. place is meaningless to them. There's no intellectual capacity to understand this is a globally important thing. It's like shooting ducks. You know, you can block off whole bits of Victoria because you've got a few mates who yeah. want to go and shoot them. In doing so, you crucify the local economies of these places because people don't go there. Instead, you could have a fantastic tourism industry... Do all sorts of extraordinary things there. Give Indigenous people, they're talking about the borough, give Indigenous people the opportunity to work, feel good about their culture, do all those things.
0: I guess the the governments, whether it is a Liberal or a Labor government at a state or federal level, are often beholden to powerful interest groups. I think that's fairly... yep reasonable to say i don't think i'm going out on a limb uh who, oh, lob- who lobbied them to keep the status quo so there may be a potential industry you could say well there's a potential tourist industry which might even be mm. of greater value but that seems to be the problem
2: yeah and I, I still think if you go back to the we're talking about the burrup if you go back to that there's still a mystery attached to it because it's not necessary right so it
1: just happens right to be there when it could have been somewhere else you're listening to the Deep Trouble podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran conversation with Peter Highlands, publisher, film producer, writer and conservationist. There have been
2: some great successes in Aboriginal Australia in the Northern Territory. One of our dear friends Jambu Amara Willy uh, who won the Telstra award this year for his one of his bark paintings. He lives at Banyalla, which is on Blue Mud Bay. A few years ago after long struggle. He won the Blue Mud Bay case with his friends that gives them not only the rights over the coastline at Blue Mud Bay, but also a large chunk of the Northern Territory coastline as well. So a lot of that's come back into their hands because of some very great leadership from some of these people. We can also see that uh, I think it's just over 50% now of the Northern Territory uh, is back in Aboriginal hands. Right. Now, a lot of that has various overlays attached to it. So, I mean, the next task is to get Indigenous people back in control properly and engaged properly in those regional economies so they benefit from the land that they own.
0: Well, how can that happen? What is the process for that happening?
2: Well, the process is, I suppose, there's a number of things that can happen to do what we're doing in the Territia National Park, for example, to make sure that these facilities are being run by Indigenous people so the the employment is going to Indigenous people first. Mm. The Northern Territory Government has now got a policy which tries to do things locally. So back in the old days of, for example, building things in Indigenous communities, you know, you hear on the news about huge amounts of money being spent on Indigenous populations. Most people in Indigenous communities are very poor. Some people have done very well and are wealthy for various reasons, but the majority are not. People want opportunities to be included in work. In the sort of studies we've done, we can see that somewhere like Alice Springs, the skills differences between the Indigenous people in employment, there's quite a few Indigenous people working in government jobs, for example. ...are very similar to their European counterparts... ...so there's not much difference there... ...and people are doing well in those positions. So the issue comes in the smaller communities... ...where there should be work opportunities... CDP has mangled some of those, the way that has gone. When Malcolm Fraser set up CDP back in his time, that's Community Development Programme, the idea yep. was to create a kind of a plan within communities where proper projects were presented yes. and people were employed to work on, you know, building toilets or doing things within the communities, right. playgrounds, all right. those kinds of things. And, and um, what happened? Well, when John Howard came along, he dismembered that right. and they so turned it, it, it into a work for the Dole scheme.
0: Was it working up until that point? It was working up, and
2: right. up until that point, and I think right. people were generally happy. I mean, these things are never perfect, but no. since that time, uh, it has turned into a total shambles and it is very punitive, and people have taken on and off of this work for the Dole scheme. You have to understand that in a lot of outstations and communities across the Northern Territory there's no internet, there's no mobile phone coverage. Mm. Um, It's getting a little bit better but it's still bad. So that when people are asked to do a report or something, they don't even know about it. And they get taken off their benefits. We happen to be working up in Yakala, which is uh, Yolngu country in uh, East Arnhem Land. Very beautiful, beautiful place when Tony Abbott and his cabinet came up and they were sort of hanging around in the the front garden of the place we were in. So I I was watching them very closely.
0: Because he was was going to spend a week every year of his prime minister's on country. And he went up to uh,
2: the Torres Strait, for example. But what we sort of noticed there was that, you know, when you look at these guys, they're doing a job and they're being paid huge amounts of money for it. The equivalent people in Aboriginal culture who are doing the same kind of job, exactly the same kind of job, in fact, you know, yes, working yes. for the community,
0: doing all that. Do you mean at the level of state government?
2: I mean at the yeah. level of managing communities. Right, because managing the, You know, so yes. they're, they're there as the politicians, as yes. the voices for the communities. There's no money for them, so they do it all for nothing. And they do it in relative poverty. So we have to be able to understand. We can't just say, OK, these people shouldn't be on CDP because they're not doing anything. Right. They're doing exactly the same thing that the politicians are doing and being paid handsomely for.
0: It sounds as though in the Northern Territory, native title has worked better than perhaps other states. I think that one of the issues was that the bar is set very high in terms of a group of Aboriginal people being able to establish a native title because it demands, as far as I can remember, proof of continuous occupation. Does, yeah. And I don't know how you do that yeah. exactly. Um, like you know, the tribe here, uh, there's three tribes: the Jagera, the Tungarung, and the Wurundjeri. And obviously, the land for the Jagera I think extends everywhere from the Macedon Ranges right up to Bort yeah. and the people were moving around in seasonal, cyclical patterns. Um, and so you're already defeated halfway. Yeah, and a lot at, of that's freehold land. Yeah, at a legal level. Their, you know, So yeah. if you're trying to prove it in court. But then it yeah. sounds like the second part of that is even once you establish native title, there's another step in terms of really what happens for Aboriginal co-ops, for Aboriginal people in terms of their opportunity for work, on the land that they've climbed?
2: Yep. These things are are very difficult because in different places people have different levels of disconnection from their past. Yes. I mean, one of the things that's happened in Arnhem Land because the courts have become more accepting of this process, of course. But if you look at the Olnu people, great, great Australians, how they have conducted themselves to win their land rights cases and they they have lost quite a few art plays a big role in this so for example the whole blue mud bay case came about because the saltwater crocodiles estuary crocodiles are sacred animals to some people in Arnhem land and near Banyala there was a discovery of a beheaded crocodile in a sack in an illegal fishing camp And that kicked off this process of creating, I think it was 80 bark paintings, which are now in the National Maritime Museum in Sydney, that showed the connection to place. Those pieces of artwork, great pieces of artwork from a whole range of Indigenous people from the region stood as the proof for their connection to those places and it is a beautiful and a remarkable story mm. and it took them many years to win the sea rights case but they did so
0: well i mean that was something that i thought about as well in terms of the importance of art for indigenous peoples so i suppose you could make it the argument if you're the devil's advocate of saying well look there's a In terms of mortality and morbidity, we need to close the gap. There's youth detention for Indigenous people at a much higher rate. Why should we have philanthropy towards arts in these particular instances or at all when we haven't addressed those issues? But is art a way of addressing some of that?
2: Well, art is central to these cultures because basically, and it's the same in Melanesia, you know, it's language, it's song and dance and the representations of those cultures that make those cultures live and keep them alive, if you like. So they're critically important components of it. The issues relating to health, to taking away children, that's now taken off again, by the way. So more and more children have been taken away since the intervention.
0: The Howard Um, intervention? Yeah, the Howard intervention.
2: intervention. And that is a completely disgraceful process, I have to say. And we watch this happening all the time. And I've got some amazing stories about it, which are bad. The imprisonment of young children for almost no reason. When we were in Alice Springs recently, this is after the Royal Commission in the Northern Territory, uh, frantic efforts from parents to find out where their kids were because the authorities don't actually tell them necessarily if there's a riot. You know, where the kids have been moved to, Uh, there was a recent riot in Dondale following the, the Royal Commission. So we were sort of caught up in this sort of panic of people trying to find their kids. So the standards of communication towards and the respect for Indigenous people in these circumstances
0: is very poor. Well, it's a complex issue, I think, that for me, what I remember from the intervention was that, first of all, if you make a group of people within your state or nation if you mobilise the military because the military mobilised in relation to that as the first step you essentially to some extent make people enemies of the state yes you do by proxy yep that's problematic. And the second part of that was the removal of Aboriginal social workers, peer workers, people in the community that that sort of lost their place. So there's parts to this. I mean, often child protection in a lot of circumstances is reactionary rather than, I guess, progressively proactive. Something happens and then there's a response to it. It seems like that's where the problem begins, that it, it goes back to that kind of idea of How do we best build these things in community rather than trying to control them from outside?
2: Yeah, that's right. And and I think there are grandmothers against removal. If you look on the Creative Cowboy Films website, for example, Mm. you'll see see discussions we've had with the grandmothers and some of them we've known for a long time. And the way they work things. And, And you have to remember that Melanesian and Aboriginal cultures are completely different from this one you know the way the kinship systems work it's a world of difference so yeah um well
0: well we can we should talk about the complexity of that because yeah. i feel like it's a very important issue in terms of removals and things like that i mean i've worked alongside the child protection system in victoria yeah. but the complexities uh, increase and it's very difficult to talk about And so I don't think that we have removals like we have in the past in terms of the stolen generation, which would have been considered to be social Darwinist government. Some of that goes on in the Northern Territory, I think. Well, that's good to learn about. But I guess you've got to separate all these things out, that there may be elements of this within the system. And then there's other elements which are about protection. Usually children are removed, in my experience, when things are Uh, almost uh, dangerous, essentially. But the issue is that in Victoria, and I don't know whether the same legislation works nationally, but if a child is going to be removed from an Aboriginal family, that they need to then be placed with a kinship family, so a family within their family somewhere, and if not possibly within the same kinship group, so the same language group. And then if not possible within that Outside into another Aboriginal tribe, and then if that's not possible, and then you're looking at other sort of yeah, foster territories. There
2: are stages, if, if I can just answer that in a number yes. of ways, looking at the Northern Territory. I think trying to live a traditional Aboriginal life, that's kind of what Arnhem Land still looks like, is becoming increasingly hard. Mm. And I think if, if you want to do that and you have children, I think that's yes. becoming difficult because that's where this sort of social Darwinism comes into it.
0: Right. Do you feel like that is coming from a state government level? Are you talking about individuals in the system who operate like that, like have yeah. racist well, I motives? Well, think, I
2: think the intervention has created a system where the oh, likelihood yeah. of removal is greater. Right. And you've got people who have every good intention but I think that becomes an issue. I mean, there's obviously another set of issues. Mm. Uh, I'm not, not an expert in this, but I can tell you what I see. Yeah. You know, it's not only in indigenous communities where communities are in trouble. And that often spins back into, you know, into what happens to the kids. Mm. And uh, I think the same thing applies in the Torres Strait as well, by the way, that the key things the, the people want is to be able to retain the children in their community. What we see in the Northern Territory is kids taken out of community, they end up in Darwin, they end up losing their language skills, they become completely disconnected from the culture, the important culture that they're part of. And the system should never create that. And the system is now creating that more than ever, I Mm. suspect.
0: So this is like, this legislation is in the best interest of the children, essentially. Um, and so, and it's also got a special segment for Indigenous people because we're dealing with different cultural yep. values. But part of the issue was that some people within the kinship group wouldn't take the children because they felt as though they were removing them from their parents and they didn't yep. want to be complicit in that. So you've got all that kind of complexity. Yeah, there's, and... there's a
2: lot of complexity. But the grandmothers will say, certainly in the Northern Territory, they're quite clear about what they think should happen. Um, and hopefully
0: they're being listened to. what do they think should happen?
2: Well they think that the kids should be retained within their own family groups right kinship groups outside know, of the family outside might of the be family dangerous itself and then of, of yeah, course yeah. Sure.
0: so so the kids
2: still part of yeah. you know that culture yeah not removed from it, not losing their identity mm. It's very difficult I mean there's a Western Australian artist called Sandra Hill. And uh, Sandra and I did a discussion in Singapore, at arch stage in Singapore, and Sandra was talking about her removal mm. and how she was treated. And, uh, you know, they obviously loved their parents. It took her a lifetime to find her mother again. Mm. And she was taken... Uh, in, this is Western Australia, so she was taken to Robe Jail Jail when, when she was removed... Um,
0: so she, she was taken during the stolen generation? Yeah, she was generation. taken during
2: the stolen yeah. generation. You know, there'd been a whole pile of other family disruptions. And, you know, for Sandra and, and for all the others, that lives with you forever. Mm. Um, you know, so it, it's extraordinary.
0: Well, one of the things people rarely understand is that even if your parents are abusive, actively abusive or even dangerous, they're still your parents. Mm. So family connections run deep and that's why even other placements I'm not talking about an indigenous perspective anyone that it creates multiple problems it it rarely easily solves anything even foster care you can get some exceptional foster carers and that they are uh, exceptional people
2: and I think with all these issues Mark it's it's about treating the the
0: cause
2: not having a crack at the the symptoms which Mm. is I think where we always end up with these things and that's easier easy to say i guess but i mean a lot of these things are very self-evident and if you look at the way governments behave they're very set in their ways you know i sometimes wonder if things could be done a lot better uh, if the things were managed better you know it's all part of the the process i mean we've got so many messes on our hands in Mm -hmm. in you know the australian context you know, you can list them all, but, I mean, energy is one, telecommunications yes. is another, you know, it goes on and on and on. So I think, you know, we, we can all do a bit better if we think about what we're doing.
1: You're listening to the Deep Trouble Podcast. Dr Mark in conversation with Peter Highlands, publisher, film producer, writer and conservationist.
0: I was interested in the idea of, which we hear a lot about, so we we talk a lot about culture in relation to diversity and inclusiveness, but what I was interested in is the idea of, do we really capture between and within cultures sort of uh, a kind of a diversity of ideas? Well, I think, I mean, if
2: you look at what's going on in Melbourne, uh, if you look at somewhere like Melbourne's North, for example, which I'm doing some work on at the moment, I mean, there's something like 160, I think it was, different language groups (laughs) (laughs) spoken not from Australia, but from all over the world. So how you harness all that is the issue, isn't it? So you've you've got people with PhDs driving taxis and surgeons doing something similar probably. So it's about trying to utilise the skills of the people that come to Australia, isn't it? And that does happen and people have obviously got the opportunity to go back to university and restudy things uh, that they've done before. So it's about maximising the potential of everybody within the community, isn't it? Whether you're Indigenous or, you know, from somewhere overseas or from Australia.
0: Do you think we're good at, or maybe you can just speak for yourself, like being able to entertain ideas that are divergent to your own?
2: Well, of course, you learn. I mean, one of the things we do a lot is we work uh, quite extensively in Japan, and I haven't spoken about this because that's a completely different culture, which I've always loved. I've had an association with Japan for about 40 years. Um, But in the last four years, I suppose, we've been particularly close to the Japanese, and we've done a lot of work up there. And that's a world of difference, and I learn a lot from that. Uh, I mean,
0: are there things like in terms of if you met somebody well a japanese person who had a cultural value that was different to yours you didn't agree with well you I mean, work.
1: You, you
2: you come across people you don't agree with all the time yeah. so i mean that's what happens yeah. um how do you deal with those issues because i often think about brexit we won a european award for our work on brexit so we've been quite closely yeah. involved a couple of years ago christopher green who's on the creative cowboy films culture council who's a British artist, yes. satirist, has his own program on the BBC. You might know him as Tina C, country of, and yeah, western star, yeah, so yeah, he's sure. a bit of a genius, Christopher. He went to collect the award for us in Piccadilly. Now, if you take the UK, for example, I mean, that has created a world of division, so how mm. that's ever going to come back together? Because a lot of the old people who voted to leave for various foolish reasons... Mm. Uh, have now died Right. so it's the young people again who are left with this terrible legacy of separation they're going to be cut off from the rest of Europe in a quite significant way instead of being able to work in Rome or Paris or Vienna they're left with the consequences they're left with the consequences of it right. so it narrows their opportunities enormously and apart from costing the British economy probably about 150 billion quid a year for no reason really You know, how do you close that gap? I don't know what the answer is because we feel so strongly about it that it's very difficult to actually speak to someone who has created that situation. I I don't know how you resolve it.
0: Oh Well, I guess that's what I mean. I mean, how do you converse with someone who holds a a view? So if they had the view of leaving, does that mean that you can't have a relationship with them?
2: I trotted around Oxford just after the the vote because i have been writing about it before the vote. And I asked people how they voted, and they were saying, you know, oh, um, we voted leave. And I'd say, well, why have you done that? And they would say, well, we it was just our idea. We thought that was what we wanted. They didn't really understand. They didn't think about it. They didn't think about it. So they didn't think about the consequences
0: to business. Uh, may not have had the opportunity to talk to other people who had spent some time thinking about it, because... People, Yeah, it well, not-
2: was snowed and, and the propaganda was enormous and, um, you know, they fell for the two-car trick. I mean, basically, they didn't like the idea of too many people like, uh, you know, too many Austrians and Romanians uh, <laughs> hanging around in England. So. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it created a mess for no reason and the trick with government is not to get into those places. David Cameron is going to be recognised as one of Britain's worst ever prime ministers because of the mess he made. And he had even the gall to say at Davos that Brexit was going much better than they thought it would. So right. I mean, this guy is clearly not on our page. I don't right. know whose page he's on, but... Um, Boris Johnson's probably not on that page yeah, either. No, no. So, much. I mean, he's on a lot of different pages. So I, I just think, you know, we don't allow ourselves to get into these situations in the first place.
0: How do we do that?
2: by proper leadership and thinking things through properly. Because once you start this process off, it becomes insoluble and you've got something very similar going on in the United States where people are really cross with each other. And, you know, the equivalent of this in Australia is really the environmental issues. So the environment is Australia's Brexit, if you like. The energy thing, the, you know, destruction of habitat, the deforestation that's going on those things are big issues in people's lives, and they need to be managed properly.
0: Well, I guess in terms of leadership, it would be around how you engage people in conversation and, I guess, get people to reasonably listen.
2: I think so, and we're now at a stage where we're so far apart on these issues as a community. Do you think think so? Well, I I think there is division about the energy situation, for Mm. example. I mean, it is a no-brainer that Mm. uh, things need to change. And I think one of the divisions is in terms of age. If we're saying we're not prepared to make these changes, we're doing something very nasty Mm. to younger people and all the other living things that
0: surround us. Well, I think about the complexity of it in relation to that because I do think that's important in terms of how we engage each other. But I suppose part of engaging each other is not necessarily being able to agree.
2: Yes, exactly. But really what I'm saying is if you create a situation that is so divisive, then it becomes much harder to bring people back together again.
0: I felt like that was what your work was about, particularly when you're talking about, um, you know, what you'd call First Nation Indigenous people around the world. And really just saying, I think, this is what I took away from the films, was... There are things you can learn that are valuable in terms of conservation and and, and relationship to land and and cultural practice. And and
2: knowledge. One would hope that knowing something, understanding it, understanding other peoples and cultures, understanding what's happening to them, understanding what's happening to the world, knowing a bit about science, knowing a bit about maths, Mm. all those things are very important. So you can work these things out. If you're equipped with those things, then you can work out these issues for yourself. You don't have to listen to some horrible newspaper telling you something that's completely wrong, you know. So I think it's up to the individual to determine where they sit in the world, obviously. But the thing to do is to do it based on fact, not on the sort of nonsense that we often get nowadays.
0: Well, I remember speaking to Tim Costello and him saying that he felt like the world was in the midst of a rapid retribalization. And this is some of the negative things, I suppose, about the way the world is traditionally, like in terms of you're talking about traditional cultures, there are very clear edges and boundaries to things and there are us and them and that sort of thing. Yeah, if if
2: you allow that to happen. But the problem we've got now is that, you know, we sit here today, California's got the highest winds, you know, it's got massive firestorms going on right now and you know 50,000 people have just been evacuated so these are catastrophes that are both environmental and social catastrophes mm. we don't know what's going to happen to the houses uh, etc so we need to understand that if we don't work together on these things and we do this internationally this is not the time for tribalism in in, in, in that sense of the word tribalism is great as long as you're in a tribe and you're doing something beautiful but we don't want this new form of tribalism I think.
0: Generally perhaps we find people who agree with us and we stick with that.
2: Yeah we do and on the internet we all talk to each other over and over again and no one disagrees because the way this works now is that we're all in the same mob and you don't get to meet the others very much. I think the the internet's interesting as we've been working on this for since 1996 in various ways. I think it hasn't turned out how I thought it would.
0: How did you think it was going to turn out?
2: Well, I thought it was going to be something really amazing for the world that would bring the world together, mm. you know, and as it turned out, a lot of bad things happened. We've got dominance of these companies in the United States, the the Facebook thing, which has grown enormously, Google, which uh, is an extraordinary company, of course. But in terms of Facebook, I mean, managing the information that's going through that system is a huge problem that wasn't envisaged before. And frankly, they're not equipped to decide what is right and what is wrong. And this is the whole thing that's going on in the United States in the government inquiries at the moment how do Facebook deal with these extraordinary issues Um, calls
0: to break it up
2: yeah well I think they're planning to have you know regional boards that kind of administer the content
0: whilst at the same time launching their own global currency yeah Yeah. so I mean yeah
2: that's right so I mean the the thing about that is once you're making such vast amounts of money you can go off and do a lot of other things but let's just get the first thing right first (laughs) yeah (laughs)
0: It seems like from a, it feels like from a creative, in terms of a venture, but also from a philanthropy perspective, you've supported the arts and, and cross culture. But because of your background, your European background, has anyone ever said, well, this is cultural appropriation or something like that? Have you ever been accused of that?
2: No, because we're not appropriating it all we're doing is providing a channel for people to tell their stories and I mean we're we're genuine about it we're not shaping it in any sense it's it's their world not ours yes Um, and I think we've got some very deep friendships uh, across the world as a result of doing it and we do work very closely with the people we work with and in in Africa for example we had in the Rift Valley some years ago now we met a young goat herd who became a creative cowboy film scholar. So he ended up going to university, did a medical degree and in medical microbiology and he's working as a medical microbiologist now, so helping his people. So th- those relationships are very close and they're long-term friendships. A lot of these people we've known for a very long time. So that's really the the story, and Andrew and I have been together since the 1960s, so we've done a lot of work together over the years.
0: Thank you. Thank Thank you for being here.
2: Pleasure. Thanks very much. Very nice to talk to you.
1: And that was the interview... We talked to Mark Halloran with Peter Highlands, sort of outlining at the end there, Mark, uh, mm-hmm. some of the positive relationships that have been built during the course of his journeys to First Nation communities. That person here referring to, somebody that he befriended, and he was a goat herder, and now he's sort of like a molecular biologist, a molecular and- biologist. Right. That's yeah. incredible. What a cool, story. Made an amazing yeah. story, yeah. All right. You know, some of the conservatives mm. are coming up with some fabulous phrases. Oh right. We? Well, I'll give you an example. Yeah. What about this movement to make green activists guilty about jetting from country to country? So anybody now has to sort of face the fact that they're going to be challenged and criticized for not living up to their Green ideals.
0: I think it started with Al Gore, wasn't it? Jetting around while he was promoting an inconvenient truth.
1: Yeah. What do you think about that line of argument? Do you think it's an effective way of dealing with your critics?
0: Well, I suppose it's exploiting people's sensitivity. It does work, though, doesn't it? I mean, Greta Thunberg, in terms of her travels around the world, she's been very conscious or I suppose the movement around her has been very conscious that she should move from place to place in the most environmentally friendly way. So when she came to America, I think Arnold Schwarzenegger
1: gave her a Tesla to travel around. Well, you know, some people criticising her for even journeying across the ocean in a carbon fibre yacht. Mm, so that the,
0: it had a backup outboard engine or something that was yeah. diesel fueled.
1: Well, I think what she's going to have to do is restrict herself to, say, a raft because, you see, her critics try trying to slow her down. If they can persuade her to not journey so far and that she should feel guilty about travelling more than 5 k from her home, they've effectively silenced her to a large extent. Mm. So we live in really intriguing times about how public opinion is being shaped and moulded I think that probably conservatives
0: and even neo-conservative commentators have changed their speech to accommodate some of the political sensitivities of the other side. It's like there are certain things that people don't move on, but there are certain things that they do to avoid unwarranted criticism. Yeah, sure. They don't want to put their head above the parapet too much.
1: Now we're going to move on to talk about next week's interview subject. Right. So who are we going to interview next week? We're interviewing Professor James Flynn. All oh, right. Oh, the famous Professor James. Talking about controversial, mm. this is going to be probably the most controversial interview of the third series. So, therefore, mm. it's one you cannot miss. Yes. Listen in and be outraged.
0: Mm. Yes, by all means. Mm. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Maine FM, Castle, Maine. Trouble magazine would like to thank its sponsors. Ararat Gallery, Tama, Bendigo Living Art Space, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery, Swan Hill Regional Art Gallery, Wangaratta Art Gallery and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support.